Father, as we open your word together, I pray for the gift of your Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to uh, transform us, to turn our hearts in love toward our Lord Jesus. Um, please um, correct anything that is uh, misshapen in us, Lord. Please uh, transform us more and more into the likeness of your Son. We ask it in his name. Amen. All right, so friends, we've been in the Vale of Tears quite a lot these past few weeks. Uh, over the summer, we were in Ecclesiastes thinking about all is vanity, and then recently we've been in the Gospel of John in chapter 11. We've heard a lot of sermons about suffering, and pain, and confusion, and today I think we do a light-hearted, happy sermon, aren't we? Uh, it's the first of October, the worst of the summer is behind us now, fall is here, we're going to take a one-week break from our preaching series in the Gospel of John, and we're going to cheer ourselves up by talking about money. Some of you laugh, you think I'm kidding, maybe you've never heard a sermon on the subject of money that could in any way be described as happy. And if that's the case, then I hope that mine today is going to be the first, because I'm not kidding. I really do find this to be a happy subject, and not just because I'm a, pre a priest and I'm employed by a church, that really has nothing to do with it. I find this to be a happy subject as a disciple of Jesus. Discipleship is good, right? It's really good. It's a good life. But it's costly in a lot of ways. And it's difficult. Learning to pray is hard. Learning to forgive is hard. Growing slowly and painstakingly in virtues like patience and self-control is hard. Following Jesus in his call onto the mission field is hard. And wrestling through the difficult questions surrounding suffering and pain when God is good and powerful is hard. As a disciple, you rarely feel like you're making very much progress or doing well at this game of discipleship at all. And most of its rewards come later. And then we get to the subject of money. And I think it's a completely different story. I hope to convince you this morning that discipleship in the area of money is easy. That it can be done quickly. That when done, it solves big problems that we've struggled with for years. It brings about an impressive set of rewards that we can have right now. Rewards like freedom, joy, and the family connectedness that we're all so hungry for. So this today is a teaching of Jesus to make us happy. And I know most of you have already discovered it and are already enjoying it. But I still want to remind you today just how good this is. So let's open the Sermon on the Mount together. Matthew chapter 6, page 811 of the Pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 6. So uh, Matthew 6 plunges us into the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is the first extended teaching of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. And we're going to think about the subject of money under three headings, obedience, freedom, and joy. So first let's think about obedience. Uh, Christians throughout all ages have agreed that this sermon in Matthew 5 through 7 is central to what it means to be a Christian. Here is the way of Jesus. Here is the very heart of discipleship. 
Jesus' words in this sermon ring down through history as fresh and as vibrant and as relevant in every time and every culture as they were to the very first crowd who ever heard them. And they are not words to be admired or congratulated. They're words to be obeyed. This is the way of Jesus. So Jesus explains at the end of his sermon, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And we who live in Florida know what happens to that house. (laughs) Again, Jesus says even more severely, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why, we should ask, did Jesus not know them? And surely it was because they did not follow the way of life he laid out for them in the Sermon on the Mount. Instead, they stuck with the old way, the way their cultures had taught them, meaning they built their life on the sand. So, don't listen to the Sermon on the Mount and say, how beautiful. Listen to it and say, let's march. Christ spoke to be obeyed. What then is better than prophesying or casting out demons or doing mighty works? If those are not the real shape of Christian life and discipleship, What is the real shape of it? And Jesus answers. Matthew chapter 5 gives its moral shape, which is love, gentleness, purity, integrity, honesty, and forgiveness. In other words, to have the commandments of God written into our hearts and behaviors to start to reflect God's own character. And then here in chapter 6, Jesus explains its devotional shape, which takes the form of giving, prayer, Fasting and giving. Yes, I said giving twice. Uh, Because it's right there in there twice. Chapter 6 starts with giving to the needy in verse 2. And it ends with the extended discussion on money which we just read together. And the recurring theme that we find in chapter 6 is do it in secret. These devotional practices are about our secret life with God. Jesus calls his followers to give and to pray and to fast in secret. Why? because it's not about impressing other people. We do these things for the Father only, out of love for him only, looking only for his reward, because that's what matters to us, and it's what matters to God. So you might hear some Christians say, well, I've planted 50 churches. I've healed hundreds of people. I put an end to human trafficking in my city. I brought about national racial justice reforms. Why then should God care what I do in my bedroom or what I do with my wallet? Why should those tiny, trivial things matter against all my mighty works? But people who say such things have the whole thing backwards, don't they? It's upside down for them. Uh, What they're preaching is not Christianity, not according to Jesus, And his is the word I think we should take on this subject. His response, they will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do many mighty works in your name? And he'll reply, I never knew you. 
The worship that God is asking for is the kind that takes place in our hearts. So what we might call the little things are in fact the things that really matter. And conversely, what we might be tempted to call the big important things really don't matter at all in heaven. God can fix all the problems in the world in a single day, and he's gonna. So for us then, here's the command of Jesus in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Let's understand his uh, teaching clearly by means of an illustration. If I have in my hand $20,000 and I go out and I buy myself a new car, I can be sure that within 25 years, one of three things will have happened to that car. If I'm lucky, it will have rusted away to pieces. If I'm less lucky, it will have been crashed or stolen. But one way or another, I will be left with nothing at all to show for that $20,000. On the other hand, if I take that same $20,000 and give it away to God, Jesus promises that then I have it forever in eternity. It has then become my treasure in heaven, immune from rust and thieves. So if that's the offer, if that's the way this game is really rigged, then the savvy player who takes Jesus seriously says... Okay, then. I should keep my spending on myself to an absolute minimum, just what I really need to survive down here, so that I can invest in eternity to the absolute maximum. I mean, I do need a car and a house and a computer to function in this world, but I'll think clearly and carefully about what I don't really need. What's just treasure on earth? And trade that in for treasure in heaven. So then what Jesus tells us in verse 19 is a command. Your Lord commands you, and your future with him depends on your obedience. But it's also a gracious invitation, isn't it? He could legitimately ask us just to ditch all our earthly treasure for no reward but him. And we would do it, and we'd be glad about it. Instead, he actually invites us to keep all our treasure for ourselves and to keep it much longer than we otherwise would by offering us a sound way to invest it. So we give out of obedience and in worship to our Father, but it also makes very good business sense. We're getting a great deal. And I hope you realize what a great deal you're getting and that it puts a smile on your face. Maybe sometimes you go online and sneak a peek at the value of your 401k. And it gives you a little bit of comfort when you think about your retirement. But isn't that just junk compared to your heavenly bank account that you've been paying into for years? You don't know exactly what's in it because you haven't let your left hand know what your right hand was doing. But it's a lot. And it's yours forever because of your obedience. So smile, saints. Now second, let's talk about your freedom. Jesus declares very bluntly in verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot. The Greek word for money there, if you look down at your footnote, is the word mammon. Jesus avoided using the ordinary word for money, and chose the Semitic word, which was also the name of the idol 
of money. The person, person, personified money, uh, idol of money. Mammon is a false god. And mammon sure has a lot of worshippers today. This world adores mammon. Mammon promises independence, autonomy, power, and influence. But in the end, of course, mammon does what all idols do. He makes slaves. So many modern people go to mammon looking for financial freedom and independence. And those people usually end up as workaholics, slaves to the desk. Other people go to mammon thinking that money can make them happy, but they discover for themselves that the answer to the question, how much money can make you happy, is always just a little bit more. So they're slaves to the wage. Some people go to mammon because they uh, do want to be generous in this world or be influential in solving the world's problems. But unfortunately, the worshippers of mammon are instead among the world's least generous people and end up doing much more harm in the world than good. You can't get there that way. Mammon is evil. It's an evil, harmful, slave-owning tyrant. And Jesus will not share his throne with mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon, he says. Mammon is the old mistress who must be thrown out for good if we're ever going to make this marriage work. And the good news is that mammon is, of all the false gods, the most easily thrown out. Some of you have gotten stuck in other kinds of slavery, like to addiction or vanity or lust or to your parents' good opinion. And you'll tell us how stuck you are and what a long and painful journey it takes to get yourself free from that slavery. But mammon, that's easy. All you have to do is give it away. You can get out of mammon slavery in a day. People in the New Testament do it. And people in history have done it. They sell everything and they dance for joy free in a day. Now, we don't necessarily have to sell everything, but we can still learn from their good example. Because, friends, our hearts are tricky beasts. But money is a powerful mover of hearts. Jesus says so in verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that makes it so easy, doesn't it? How long have we tried to direct our hearts toward heaven when they are so sluggish and stubborn and lazy? How hard it is to make them care about the right things. But here's a valuable secret. Send your money there. Send a lot of your money there. And your heart is going to follow where your money goes. That's a priceless trick. Hearts are very difficult to direct. Money is easy to direct. If you want it, you could empty your bank account right here and now without getting out of your seat. This is happy news that the old tyrant mammon is so easily escaped. You'll know when you're free because you'll be giving until it hurts. That's the sound of mammon screaming. Until it starts to really cost you and in the process you'll be experiencing freedom and joy about it. So finally, let's talk about this joy. There are lots of kinds of joy in Matthew chapter 6. There's the joy we've already talked about from verse 20, where we have a store of treasure in heaven to look forward to. There's joy in verse 22, in Jesus' promise that if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. We've preached on these verses before and shown how this metaphor of the eye being good is a metaphor for generosity. In the Old Testament, a bad eye is a metaphor for greed. 
And Jesus says here that greed creates blindness so that we live in a dark world. But the opposite is also true, that generosity brings joy. Light and joy. The next kind of joy is our freedom from anxiety. And this comes from the section that begins in verse 25. Here, as we talk about anxiety, Jesus is still very much on the subject of money. He knows that when he calls his disciples to be radically generous, to give away significant sums of money, he anticipates their first objection, that we're going to start to worry about how we'll live. We ask, how then will we eat? What will we wear? How will we pay our utility bills? And the like. So look down at verse 31. Jesus replies, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. As we read through the whole Bible, this is probably the major section that talks about anxiety. Interesting, isn't it, that the major biblical teaching on anxiety comes right here in the context of money. As we look at our world today, anxiety is a major, major problem. It is off the charts right now. You have anxiety. You do. <laughs> it's just a question of whether it's a little bit or a lot and whether you're treating it or not. But you have it. And maybe it's not directly a financial anxiety. Maybe you've always had plenty of money and that's never been a concern for you. But you have some other kind of anxiety, maybe social anxiety or performance anxiety or something else. Here's an idea. What if the whole area of money in our lives is God's training ground for this problem of anxiety, whether we have money or not? Jesus talks about it right here in this context, and maybe that's for a good reason. Jesus promises that when we give away more than we think we can afford, then we discover the Father. So if you only ever provide for yourself, how do you find the Father? Expose yourself to a need that you can't solve, and all of a sudden, there he is. So maybe Jesus' prescription for all anxiety, financial or not, is to discover your Father to learn deep in our souls that we are not orphans. That is the cure. And his suggestion here on the Sermon on the Mount is that generosity is the simplest way to find that cure, whether or not anxiety is mostly about money. So I encourage you to test the Father on this. If you under-provide for yourself by your generosity, will he step in as he has promised? When he does... You will discover the Father, you will be freed from anxiety, and you will discover joy. So that's already, I think, an impressive list of reasons for joy that comes from giving. But let's add still one more. Giving is fun. It's really, honestly, truly, genuinely fun. Our giving, of course, goes somewhere. We don't just burn the money. That's not how God wants to be worshipped in a burnt offering. Um, and God himself doesn't need our money for anything. He already has all the pairs of shoes he'll ever need. So instead, we give the money where it's needed to help the poor, mostly. In verse 2, there's an assumption in Jesus' teaching, when you give to the needy. So it's important that we get our order of priorities straight. We are giving in worship first. Remember the priority of the whole of chapter 6. Do it in secret so your father is the only one who sees and the only one who rewards you. 
then connected with that worship is our own obedience to Jesus. We give because Jesus commands us to. But once we have those priorities in place, it is then also our joy and our privilege to give to the needs of the world and the work of the kingdom of God. And that part is really fun. I hope that you're having fun with it right now. Um, I want to share with you a bit of the story of my own discipleship in this area. I know that the left hand is not supposed to know what the right hand is doing. But I feel that in this instance, you need to know that your pastor isn't just making this up or telling you how to live when he's never really tried it himself. In my own story, the Lord helped me with an unusually easy road into giving. After high school, when I was 18, I took a gap year before college, and I worked in the city of London for an engineering firm. And that year, I was being paid a full-time city salary while still living at home and paying not any rent or expenses. So the money was just flowing in. <laughs> I could buy anything I wanted. Uh, and I did get serious about saving for college. But in that season, I also had the luxury of getting on top of my Christian giving. And I started giving away 10% of that income when I was 18 years old. And honestly, it was easy. I understand that my situation was unusual. Uh, it was easy. It really didn't cost me anything. But I got into the habit of it during that year. And when I left that job and went to university, I kept up the habit. I had a loan and a government support check. I didn't give on the borrowed money, but I gave away 10% of the support check. After college and my first engineering job, I gave 10% of my salary. When I left that job and went to seminary, I gave 10% of my support money and scholarship. And when I graduated seminary and took a church job, I gave 10%. In the past couple of years, we've been able to increase our household giving beyond 10%. And I won't pretend that there haven't been any anxious days, but really not very many. And I can assure you that all the promises of Jesus in Matthew 6 are true. So during that first year at the engineering job in London, I followed a practice that I learned from my English pastor, and I put half of all my giving away in a savings fund to pay for big projects. And I had that fund in place when I went to college, and I was able to respond to a request from my Bible study group leader to purchase a laptop for a Christian international student who had no other way of getting one. I was also able to help a homeless man find lodging for a season, and he ended up putting his faith in Jesus and being baptized. After college, we were in a Bible study group in Jacksonville, and our group clubbed together to buy one of our members a car so that she could get to work. It was a very old car, but 10 years later, she was still driving it. And those moments were fun. They stick out in my mind as real highlights of my life. And of course, in the past few years, there have been dozens more. This is such a happy part of Christian discipleship. I wouldn't want any of you to miss out on it. So, take a single American dollar. Here's one. What are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with this? We could buy a candy bar for a treat and the dollar's gone. We could buy a tiny little piece of earthly treasure and it's equally gone. We could invest it in this world's economy and we get back a few percent a year while we fund the American corporate machine which is enslaved to mammon. Or we could give this God dollar to God. What do we get then? For this one American dollar, we get one dollar's worth of heavenly worship plus one dollar's worth of sticking it to mammon plus 
one dollar's worth of investing our hearts in heaven plus one dollar's worth of heavenly treasure waiting for us in eternity plus one dollar's worth of good done to the poor and needy in our midst. So by my count, this dollar is immediately worth five. And I'd say that's an opportunity that can't be beat. So don't you think this is a happy subject after all? <laughs> in saying what he says here, Jesus lays no real burden on us. The world tells us we should be afraid of this teaching, that it's way too radical and out of touch with reality. No! It's the world that's out of touch with reality. They're the ones who are clueless about money, who don't know what it can really do, and only know how to waste it in bad markets. Let's be different. Let's listen to Jesus, and let's get busy giving. I challenge you to see how far you can go down this road and to see how different you can be. My dad, toward the end of his career, was giving away 50%. That man is a happy Christian, and he defines a cheerful giver. We've got to give until Mama knows that she is well and truly dumped. We've got to give until our hearts know that they live every day only by the grace of the Father. We've got to give until the Joneses are a distant speck on the far horizon and everything that we truly value is in the world to come. We've got to give that much to follow Jesus. And I'll just say that that's probably going to take you a good deal more than 10%. A good deal more. But that's for your own heart to decide. The point here is... Don't be soft on yourself. Don't miss out on this very different life that Jesus has in mind for all of us. This is the good life of discipleship. The world's way doesn't work. It's never worked. You know it's not working. Let's try obedience, freedom, and joy.